Well, we've been in the book of Colossians, and uh, oh yeah, we'll go back. So we've been in the book of Colossians, and we've been going through some good stuff. It's been it's been a great study, great book to go through so far. Uh, I've been blessed myself, and I pray that you have as well. Yeah, there we go. Thanks, Peter. And. Um, one of the things that you know, we, we've talked about over and over, we've talked about Paul's writing this letter, and he's writing this letter to correct, to instruct, to admonish, but he's doing it to basically go against some of the teaching that had crept in the church, the false teachers. Now, this teaching varied as we get later on in the book of Colossians, so you'll get to see more of what... Uh, in general, this teaching was. We don't know specifically what it was. We do know that it was uh, an early form of Gnosticism in that they were teaching you had to have a special knowledge to try to try to understand God and know who He is. They were emphasizing tradition. They were emphasizing uh, mysticism, emphasizing philosophy. But those are things that Paul is writing this book. He's writing to help them deal with this false teaching that's coming to the church. And as we've worked our way through Colossians, we've, t- we've talked about how Paul uh, has written to them, he's given thanks for them, uh, he's even given his prayer for them in verses 9 through 14. Uh, and then we went through a huge section, 15 through 20, where we talked about the supremacy of Christ. We talked about Christ as supreme over all creation, and Christ is supreme over the new creation. And then to bring it more specific to their situation, Paul goes from Jesus Christ reconciling all things to himself to the reconciliation that individual believers, specifically this church and us in application, have through Jesus Christ. And he said at the very end of verse 23, or he says, he says, I, Paul, was made a minister, or the word also is servant. And he says, I'm a minister of this, this gospel that brings reconciliation between God and man. But have you ever thought about, when you talk about being a minister or a servant of the gospel, have you ever thought what gospel ministry is? You know, what, is what is church supposed to be about? Right? We have many different ideas in this world we live in that says that church is supposed to be all about having fun. It's supposed to be all about the entertainment uh, it's supposed to be about the emotional uplifting, right? Well, how do we do church? What is church really about? Do we have to have great light and sound shows and smoke to make it a good service? Uh, do, we, do we have to appeal to the hearts and minds of unbelievers in the hopes that they will join us and then turn bring others? You know, what's, what's our philosophy? What's our focus? And is it about wearing robes? Or suit and tie? Or is it investments? Uh, is it like doing the same thing that our, our parents did and following in the traditions that we've always done? Is church a, a mystical experience where, where if we don't get that experience with God, we haven't really worshipped? Is it about a special knowledge or a religious rite where we have to earn grace and, and gain God's favor? Is it only for the most dedicated and the most holy to be able to get something out of a church service, a worship service? Well, my wife and I were talking with this couple, and, they were, and she was telling us about how their daughter was visiting this church youth group, 
It was a different church than we were a part of, and all of our friends were going to this, this youth group. It was a very large youth group. The youth group probably had 150 members alone, and so her daughter had all these friends from school, was visiting there, and uh, when he, she, this is the lady, and she's telling my wife and I, and we asked her, said, well, what did her daughter say about the service? And the lady said, well, I asked my daughter, and her daughter said that, you know, she loved the music, she loved the atmosphere, and she had a good time. And her mom said, well, is, is that all? You know, and she said, well, after, you know, afterwards, we all had fellowship. We went out for ice cream. It was, good. It was a good time. And her mom said, well, what about, what about the preaching or teaching? Was there anything that involved, uh, like, the, was there a sermon? You know, what did, what did the youth minister do? And the, uh, the daughter said, well, you know, it was, it was pretty good. You know, it lasted about 15 minutes. And he, uh, he spoke about how we should um, stand up to bullies and we should, um, you know, really feel good about ourselves and not feel bad if a bully makes fun of us. And her mom said, well, did he, did he open the Bible? Did he read any passage? And she, she said, no, he just kind of gave up and it was a little uh, a talk and, uh, you know, it was good. Now, her daughter is not a believer and her mom knew this and we would have discussed that before. And, uh, and so we, we continued to talk and I said, well, what did you do? I was talking to this lady. I said, what did you do? She said, well, I went to the youth minister. And I said, you know, do you guys actually read the Bible, study the Bible? Do you emphasize personal Bible reading, personal holiness? Do you, do you teach God's word? And it was interesting, I'll never forget her reply, or what she said, he said. And he said, you know, we know that the average attendee here at our church is probably only going to be here for about three years. Our goal is to get people in, get them the basic gospel message, and then as they'll grow, they'll move on to other churches. That is one way to do church. I would say that is not how you do church. And don't you wish, I mean, you think about it, don't you wish we had a place... Uh, somewhere we could go, a manual that would tell us how we are to do church? Don't you, don't you think like maybe, maybe somewhere, some book that we could turn to to figure out how is it that we please the Lord and we, we, what we're supposed to do when we get together? I mean, it seemed like we, we should have some kind of manual. Um, maybe there's a guide we could look up, maybe the internet, you know? Well, there is. Obviously, I'm being a little sarcastic, but we have God's Word. We have the Bible that, that in the Scriptures that teach us what God's expectations for us are, what, who God is and what He's done. And we're going to look at this morning, we're going to look at the central focus of church ministry. Because what we're going to look at, this section we're going to look at today in Colossians 1, chapter 1, verse 24 through 29, deals with Paul's ministry in general to the churches. So in application, if this is the central focus of the Apostle Paul's ministry to all churches, then this should be our central focus. And the central focus of the Apostle Paul's ministry is the Word of God. And as as a consequence, the central focus for the churches should be the Word of God. Now in this section, this is a huge section, Chapter 1, verse 24, excuse me, through chapter 2, verse 5. In this big section, Paul is giving a description of his ministry and then telling about the objective of his ministry. Now, these will be obviously two sermons. We can't get to all this today. But we're going to be looking at a description of Paul's ministry here in chapter 1, verses 24 through 29. And in this passage, like I said before, we're going to talk about the central focus of the ministry of the Apostle Paul and the central focus of the ministry of the churches of God. So let's go ahead and look at the text, and then we'll dig in. Chapter 1 of Colossians, verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, 
And in my flesh I do my share on behalf of His body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed upon me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the Word of God, that is, the mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to His saints." to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this ministry among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim Him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to His power, which works mightily within me. So the first thing that we have this morning, the first point that we're going to look at, we're, we're going to let, look at a share of the suffering. So when we look at Christian ministry or a gospel-centered ministry or the ministry of a local church, if you want to put it in those terms, we're looking at a share of the suffering. Now this, this passage here is an interesting passage or this verse, verse 24, because nowhere else in Scripture do we have Paul saying what he says in this way. And as a result, this particular verse has been misused by many over the years. In fact, the Catholic Church uses this verse to teach of purgatory, which it does not teach. So let's look at it and you'll see what what I'm saying in just a second. So he says, Now rejoicing my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. So when you, when you think about this verse, or especially that last section, that last um, half sentence, people will say that and go, well, how do we fill up what is lacking? Did, did Christ's suffering, was it, was it not enough to cover and take care of sin? Right? And so the, the Catholic Church will say, and they'll use this verse and say, well, look, that Christ's suffering wasn't sufficient to take care of your sin in totality. Right? And so there must be a purgatory where when you die, if, if you're not in a right state with God fully when you die, you have to go to purgatory and work off some of that sin. Right? Because they'll say Christ's, Christ's sacrifice wasn't sufficient to deal with all kinds of sin. Now we know that from Scripture that's not accurate. In fact, Paul has just said in Colossians chapter 1, it says in verse 20, that through Him, through Christ, He reconciles all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Who He's made peace with? He's made peace with God through the blood of His cross. If you're, if you're at peace with God, if you've been reconciled, then His sacrifice must have been accepted. Okay. He also says in verse 22 of Colossians, He has reconciled you in His fleshly body through death in order to present you before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. He has reconciled you with the sacrifice of His body. His sacrifice of Himself was satisfactory. Right? Peter just read Romans where Christ was the propitiation. His sacrifice of Himself was satisfactory to God. It was substitutionary. In your place, it's propitiation in that it satisfied the wrath of God and you have been reconciled to God by the blood of Jesus Christ. Right? His sacrifice is sufficient. Okay? Now, one of the things that Paul means, or what Paul means here when he says, filling up what is lacking, it has to do with the idea of filling up. Right? Paul is, says, I'm doing my share of filling up, of, of filling up a quota. All right? The idea is there's something that is lacking, something that is not complete. 
Okay? And so you've got to think about this in the way that Paul means it. He says, I'm, I'm working on, uh, I'm suffering, I'm doing my share of suffering for Christ's body. Who is Christ's body? We are, the church. These Colossians are. Okay? So what he's saying is that the suffering that Christ began with his gospel message, right? And Christ shared the gospel. He is the gospel, right? The message, when Christ died, that message didn't stop. The message of the gospel continues, and as the gospel message continues, there will be suffering on account of that message. So Paul is basically saying, look, I'm doing my share. Right? You remember, this is a prison, this is a prison epistle. He's in prison for the gospel, in prison for the sake of these believers and others. Right? So he is fulfilling his share. Right? And that that share, that, that what's lacking in the afflictions, or what will continue, that quota will not be filled until what? Till Christ comes back. As the gospel is spread throughout the world, there will be sufferings on that account. So those of us, just like Apostle Paul, that preach and teach, including each one of us, as we teach and share the gospel, there will be suffering, Right? We will join in the afflictions of the body of Christ because we share the gospel. We're, we will join with Apostle Paul. Does that make sense? So we're, it's not that Christ's substitutionary sacrifice was lacking. What, was, what is lacking is there's going to be more and more suffering for the gospel until the final quota is fulfilled. Right? So one of the things, you think about it like, like this. Um, I used to, as a, as a Boy Scouts, we would, we, would, we would sell donuts. We'd sell Krispy Kreme donuts. What a blessing it is to have Krispy Kreme donuts here. I mean, I don't know if you guys know this. I haven't said it. I probably will continue to say it. It started in North Carolina where I'm from. I've been to Krispy Kreme number two and number three. In fact, my mom's gone, but she would tell you she, she met my dad for dates at the third Krispy Kreme in Greenville, North Carolina. So it's a special place. We took her there. Took her to a Krispy Kreme in Australia before she left. So it was a special time. But... We used to sell Krispy Kreme donuts to earn money in Boy Scouts for, for trips and things like that. And, you know, you had a certain quota you had to fulfill, right? And you would do whatever you could to fill that quota. You're taking Krispy Kreme donuts to work. You're taking them to the mall. You're taking them to the library. You're trying to sell these bad boys so that you could earn money, right? Well, that, that's, that's the idea here that there's, there's a certain quota of affliction that God has set that He's going to allow to take place for the sake of the gospel. And we're all doing our share to fulfill that quota, you think about in Revelation, talks about the, the saints around the throne, right? I think Revelation chapter, I believe it's chapter 6, where they said, How long, O Lord, do we have to wait right, for, you, for you vindicate us for the suffering that, we've taken, that we've, we've taken on ourselves because of the gospel, because of Christ, right? So there's a certain amount of suffering that we all shall endure, so just as Paul has that share of suffering, so shall we. So but Paul also in this in this share of suffering. There you go. Well, I hit the button here. Comforting him is gospel. But there's also an attitude of joy. Notice he says back in the very first part of verse 24, I rejoice in my suffering. One of the things you should remember about the Apostle Paul as you read through his letters is he was a man full of joy. He was a man that was hurt and robbed and broken and stoned and endured hardship from inside the church. Read the book of 1 Corinthians. He was endured hardship from outside the church. Read the book of Acts. 
but yet he was a man that had joy. He understood that his joy was internal, right? Now, one way that we can lose joy, we can lose joy in our own hearts when we lack humility, right? A, good, a big cause of depression, a big cause of a loss of joy is when we get so focused on ourselves, right? We think, hey, I deserve better circumstances, I deserve a better marriage. I deserve better kids. I deserve a better job. I deserve. It's always a focus on ourselves. And we lose that joy. Right? Instead of being, as the Apostle Paul says in Philippians, I have learned contentment in Philippians 4. I've learned to be content with much, with less, with nothing. Right? He's learned to be content. Instead of us learning to be content, we focus on what we don't have. We might not directly say, oh, Lord, it's your fault, but we are, right? Because we think we deserve more than what we have, and we lose our joy. Because joy is, is, is an eternal thing. It's not based on circumstances, right? If it was based on circumstances, could the Apostle Paul maintain his joy? No. It was robbed. He was poor, stoned, opposed. He had to deal with knuckleheads like the Corinthian church, Right? The only good thing, by the way, in 1 Corinthians that he says is at the very beginning, he says, I thank God that he saved you. And the rest of the book is all corrective. Right? He had to deal with these, these churches that just didn't seem to get it. See, it's not based on your circumstance. You can have great joy and be in utter poverty. You can have great riches and, still, and have the joy. Right? You can have nothing. You can have much. It doesn't matter. The joy doesn't change. And humility is that answer. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 1-5, through 5, he says, There is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any, affle- uh, excuse me, any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. This is humility here. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourself, which is also in Christ Jesus. Right? So that's humility. Think of others as more important than yourselves. Right? And then down at the very end of chapter 2 of Philippians Verse 17, he says, Even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and I share my joy with you all. You too I urge to rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Right? A drink offering. right? When you get a drink offering, it would, be, it would be something valuable, wine, and it would be poured out for the altar, on the altar just as a dedication to the Lord. Now, in the world's eyes, they're looking at that going, no, it's like buying, you guys imagine buying the most expensive glass, excuse me, expensive bottle of wine that you can think of and just pouring it out on the ground. Right? In the world's eyes, that's a waste. Don't do that. That's what Paul's saying here. If my life is being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, he said, I don't care. I rejoice. So we're going to face opposition, just as the Apostle Paul faced opposition when we share the gospel with others. Right? There's going to be affliction. But in that affliction, we can maintain joy. Right? It's about focusing in on Jesus Christ. 
who's the supreme creator of the universe, supreme creator of us as new creations. And one day will rule and reign and begins that rule in your hearts. Right? So not only do we have a share of the suffering, but we have a stewardship of the Word. Just like the Apostle Paul has a stewardship of the Word. Right? Verse 25, he says, Of this church, he's talking about Christ's body, of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God, bestowed upon me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the Word of God. We'll stop there for a second. So Paul says, I'm a minister. Right? The word here for minister is diakonos. Right? We get our word for deacon. It really means servant. In fact, over in verse 7, it says that Epaphras, our beloved bondservant, who is a faithful servant, faithful minister. And even down in verse 23 of Colossians chapter 1, Paul says, I was made a minister. I was made a servant of the gospel, a minister of the church. It's interesting that he, wasn't, he uses this in the passive tense. He says, I didn't choose this. Right? It was a calling. And for those of us, in the sense of in the ministry, been called a full-time ministry, it wasn't, it wasn't a choice. Right? I had my career plan planned out. I was going to go into teaching. My mom was a teacher. I was going to be a history professor. I loved history. I was in uni. And then the Lord said, you know what? That's not what I want you to do. And I couldn't shake it. I felt like, you know, the Lord's calling me to go into full-time service. Spoke with those in the church that were I knew were godly men and said, This is I can't shake this this feeling and this desire. And they said, Well, let's let's give you opportunities to serve, let's give opportunities to teach. And they confirm that calling. So, well, you need education. You go into go into Bible college and then seminary and go into further training so that you can in turn minister to others. But for for those that are called into the ministry, it, it's not a choice. Right? We don't we don't do it to to make money. Right? If I wanted to make money, I would have gone and tried to own a Chick-fil-A, right? <laughs> a restaurant, or I would have done something else. Right? I would have stayed in the teaching. Just kidding. Uh, if I wanted to, wanted to make money or I wanted to do something. But you know what? It's, it's something that you can't shake. It, it's interesting in my own heart, the Lord confirmed that in my life a, few, a couple years ago where I, I, was, I was praying for opportunities to do ministry in Australia. I knew I mean, you can ask my friends, they're like, he's an idiot, you know, he's stupid. Seven, eight years ago, I'm saying, oh, Lord, wants me to go to Australia. And they're like, what, Australia? What in the world? And so I'm praying, and, and a couple opportunities where I candidate, and they fell through, and I'm thinking, oh, I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe the Lord just wants me to use my gifts in other areas, and, and maybe I can just serve, and, and I can pursue something else. And um, the Lord basically shut the door on the direction I was going and said, no, 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 I, I want you in the ministry. And what, what a blessing it is for me and a confirmation in my own heart that this is the direction the Lord has me. And so Apostle Paul felt that same way. He, had, he, he didn't choose. In fact, he was persecuting the church when Christ appeared to him and said, Hey, stop persecuting me. And, Jesus, and he says, Who are you? I said, Well, I'm Jesus. What do you want me to do? I'm going to show you. In fact, he says, Jesus actually says to um, a prophet there, he says, I'm going to show him how much he's going to have to suffer for me. Right? So it, it, was a, it was a calling, it was not a choice. But he says, I've been a servant for their benefit. He's a minister. When, when you're a servant, you, you're, you're thinking about what could benefit others, even to the detriment of yourself, right? You don't care what it costs you, right? And we're all to be servants of the gospel in that sense, right? We're, we're to serve the Lord, not caring what it costs us, Right? 
Because when it costs us in this life, what do we look forward to? We look forward to the future hope. That's what matters. He said, I've been made a minister, a servant according to the stewardship from God. God is giving him a stewardship. Now, in those days, a steward was someone who was put in charge of the household, right? If you owned a household and you had a little bit of money, you had property, you would put a steward in charge of your household. And in some cases, the, the steward would be in charge of even your kids to help make sure that they were getting the education that they needed to get, right? You could trust that person with your, with your property, with what you had. You could trust them with everything because you could go and do what you wanted to do. Right? You wanted to go travel, you wanted to, go, uh, you wanted to be in a political office, you wanted to do uh, hobbies. We put someone that you could trust in charge. Well, Apostle Paul says, look, I have a stewardship. Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, it says that for a steward, he must be faithful. Right? So there is an accountability. So in a grand sense, even though the Apostle Paul was, uh, uh, obviously he was an apostle, and he was a minister. We have each been given the stewardship of the Word of God, right? We, I was talking to Alex the other day, and we were talking about a particular uh, counseling situation. And I think one of the comments that I made, and, and he echoed it, and we kind of talked about it, was, was we have such a famine for the Word of God, right? Such a famine for biblical teaching. What a blessing it is for you that you have the advantage of having great biblical teaching for all these years, right? Not to buff Jeff's halo, but Jeff's done a great job, right, of teaching the Word of God. Right? You guys have had that benefit. There are believers around the world that would kill, and I mean that figuratively, that would love to have what you guys have had all these years, right? There's a stewardship that comes with being able to hear and having the blessed teaching that you've had for all these years, right? We're going to be held accountable for all that we know, all that we've been taught. What a tremendous weight that is upon our lives, right? So there's a stewardship that comes to knowing the Word of God. There's an accountability and a responsibility. And as, as sheep, I love what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.12. He says, But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you and give you instruction. Right? Being a pastor, an elder, teacher, it's not an easy job. I mean, even the, honestly, I, I really appreciate the elders in this church. Right? The guys who they, they do a lot of their ministry work, you know, after doing a full-time job, right? They preach, and they're working full-time, right? They shepherd, they guide, they call, they email, they help you guys, right? And they do it while working and having families. So praise the Lord for those that have taken on the mantle of elder and have that responsibility. Appreciate them, love them, show them, show them the kindness that they deserve, so not only do you, you uh, a stewardship, you're a servant of the church, Paul, then you also have the stewardship of the preaching of the Word. Paul continues and he says, look, not only have I been made a servant and a minister, he said, I've been giving charge to preach. Look in verse, uh, let's see, we'll, we'll start at verse, end of verse 25. He says, that might fully out, carry out the preaching of the Word of God, 26, that is the mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to His saints. 
to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of His glory and of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Right? So he's been given a charge. He's been given, uh, he's been given a charge by God to preach the word of God. So he wants to carry out that fully. And so that's what we do here at New Community Church. We emphasize the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God. And when you think about what's central, right? We, we worship God in song and in prayer, right? But those songs and those prayers are word-based, right? We, we, the central part of the worship service and how we worship the Lord is through the proclamation of the Word of God. Right? Because we want to know what? Who God is. How do we know who God is? Well, He's revealed Himself in His Word. We want to know what His demands for our lives are. What does He want us to do? He's revealed His will in His Word, right? Well, how do we live our lives? We go to God's Word. That's why you guys sit here every week, right? We, we all worship together. We worship in praise. We worship in prayer. We worship in our giving. And we worship in the proclamation and preaching of the Word of God, whether either I'm preaching or you're listening, there's the worship involved. Right? Faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of God. The Word of God challenging us, we respond to it with what? Worship, we respond to it in faith, we respond to it in obedience. Right? The Word of God is central to the ministry of the church. There's, there's a charge. There's also a content in verse 26. Now, a mystery is something that is, that is knowable that God has left undisclosed, right? Even, even emphasizes that, and he said it was hidden from past ages and generations, or past dispensations, or past times, right? I love what First Peter 1, it says that the, the prophets made careful searches and inquiries seeking to know what, what time would be with Christ's coming, the time of Christ's coming, all right? So you, you think about the fact that Christ is hidden in the Old Testament, right? It's like, it's like doing Easter egg hunts, right? As a kid, you used to do Easter egg hunts. You go out and hide the eggs, and you know where they are. Like, the parents always know where they are, right? But you're waiting for the kids to run out there and get the Easter eggs, and they're all looking for them running around, right? And slowly and slowly, they're all revealed. Sometimes you kind of have to help them, like, here's one right here, and you kind of kick the dirt, right? Easter egg... In the Old Testament, Christ was hidden, right? God slowly revealed His redemptive plan, culminating in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? God has revealed His redemptive plan slowly over time. Um, Actually, Jesus actually says Himself when He's walking on the road to Emmaus with a couple of disciples after His resurrection, He actually, they didn't know who He was, and he actually opens up the Old Testament. He says, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he revealed what the Scriptures say about him. Right? Now, we have to be careful when we go to the Old Testament. Then we read Christ into everything. Right? Oh, that rock is Christ. And those five smooth stones that David picked up represent, you know, Christ's blood and his redemption. And his, I mean, I've heard a sermon like that before. You have to be careful that we don't allegorize everything so that it's all about Jesus. But we know quite a bit in the Old Testament is about the Lord because it's been revealed to us in the new, right? Different pictures of Christ, right? Where 
just small example, where the temple was built. The temple was built on Mount Moriah. The temple, the temple uh, was built, and where the Holy of Holies was, was the same place right, that Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac. Right? It's the same place when the angel of the Lord was going to destroy Jerusalem because of David's disobedience and numbering of the people. David basically interceded before the people and begged God to forgive his sin and not hurt the people because of that. The angel of the Lord stopped right there, Mount Moriah, where the Holy of Holies was going to be. Right? With the Ark of Covenant gone... The high priest in Jesus' day would come into the Holy of Holies and he would sprinkle the blood on what was called the foundation stone. Peter says that Jesus is the stone that the builders rejected. You have pictures of Christ in the Old Testament. The Old Testament was Christ hidden in a mystery. The New Testament is Christ revealed. It is the new covenant versus the old covenant. So the content is a mystery. The mystery is God is reconciling the world to Himself, both Jews and Gentiles, into one body in union with Jesus Christ. It's a great mystery. right? I love this that He says, look, He says, but it has been manifested. It was hidden, but now it's revealed to you. What a special thing. How special would you feel if I walked up to you and I told you a secret? that no one else would know. Something so special. And you'd be like, oh, I feel special. Wow. No one else knows this? Christ, God in Christ, has revealed His mystery to His saints. And now, notice He says, it's saints plural, right? In combating the false teachers, the false teachers were saying that, oh, you had to have this special knowledge, right? You have to come along with us, and we'll teach you some secret handshakes, you know, some secret baseball signs, you know, so that you can understand Jesus better and that, you know, you can grow in your knowledge of Him. And as you grow in your knowledge of Him, you'll be closer to God. They were saying, well, we'll reveal the special, the special mysteries to you so that you can know what, how you're supposed to live and act and please God. Paul says, look, you have been given the mystery of the past ages. Right? You have God's Word. You don't need any more. Right? He said they've had the mystery. They have the Gospel. They understand that God is reconciling all things. They don't need to know any more secrets to please God. You're at peace with God through the sacrifice of the Son. I love what he says here. and I can tell that Paul knew some Aussies. Right? Paul knew some Aussies. He had to. Right? Because he says, and this doesn't translate really good into English, but he has an interrogative sentence here. But he, and he says, it, um, he says it like this in verse 27. He says, To whom God will to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. Well, basically in the Greek it says, How great are those riches? Let's see if I can do it. <clears throat> how great are those riches? You've got to go up at the end, like Ozzy's, right? Like, how about that rain? Right? Sorry, it's my American attempt to do it. Yeah, you know, how about that rain? They, they would say, Ozzy's would say, you know, how about those riches? And that's Paul's point here. He's doing it as an interrogative to influence or to, to, to draw an emphasis. How about those riches that you have? Right? 
It's God's will to make known that he, it's His will to reveal His word, to reveal the mystery to you so that you to understand salvation. And then He says, how about those riches of the glory of this mystery that you have? How about that future inheritance? How great are the riches that you have in Christ that one day will be fulfilled with you when you're before Him and you have that inheritance? How great are those riches? Not John riches. How great are those riches? He said, you have that inheritance, that inheritance which is undefiled, imperishable, unfading, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith. 1 Peter chapter 1. How great are those riches? And he said, and then he says, not only has he, he, you have these riches, but this mystery among the Gentiles, and he references the mystery again, and he says, here's the mystery, Christ is in you. Right? The fact that Christ indwells us gives us assurance that there's going to be riches, right? Ephesians 1 says that the Holy Spirit is the seal. It's a deposit, right? The Holy Spirit's also called the Spirit of Christ. So we have Christ in us and us in Him, right? When you, when you have a tendency from time to time, I'm going through a 12th time, does God care? Am I, am I really a believer? And we should actually do self-examinations. But at, at the same time, we say, well, look, I'm saved. Christ is in me. And I have a future inheritance. And if Christ is in me, there's nothing that's powerful enough to pull Him out of me. Not even myself. Christ is in you. That's the mystery. He's in us individually and He's in, the, in us corporately. Right? No one here are Jews not that I know of. We're all pig-eating Gentiles. I am. Right? We had no hope. We had no promises made to us. Right? But now we do. Because we're in one corporate body, Jews and Gentiles. Together, we have an inheritance forever with Christ. We have Christ Himself in us. And He says, look, He says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Hope is always tied to the gospel. And as you've seen already, I've mentioned hope several times throughout this sermon series. Paul is emphasizing your hope. Hope is what awaits you. It's what we live for. It's a motivation. It's something that, that cannot be disturbed. Right? It's the hope of glory. I don't know about you, but I can't wait for glory. Don't you get tired? As, well, as you get older, you get tired of waking up and there's aches and pains. Right? And, you know, I'm a young guy. And Kevin's over here laughing at me going, what does he know about aches and pains? You know? Wait till you get my... I'm just kidding. You know, don't, but don't, don't, you, don't you get tired of knowing that there's going to be glory? All the sin in this world, right? Knowing that God's going to judge that and deal with that and move that out of the way forever in the lake of fire, the sin and Satan and his demons and forever will be with him. How glorious that will be. That is the hope of glory, right? Maranatha. Paul, Paul says the word Maranatha in 1 Corinthians. It means, it means Lord Jesus, come, right? Is that your prayer? Is that hope of glory? Wow, what a, what a great mystery, a great secret that's been revealed to us as saints. And we have a responsibility as a steward, not only as a, as a servant of the gospel, but with what we've received. Right? What are you doing with that mystery? Are you, are you living your life based on the hope? As you've heard me say over and over, and I will continue to say, Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, Verses 3 and 4, he says that 
They have a continued faith in Jesus, and continued love for each other based on the hope of their lives. The hope of glory motivates them to live in obedience to Christ and live for love for each other. We have a stewardship of the Word of God. Then you have a scope of the gospel ministry. Down in verse 28. We proclaim Him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. So, Paul says, look, first of all, we proclaim Him. It's interesting that he says that we proclaim Him. He doesn't proclaim a philosophical system, right? He doesn't proclaim an experiential time. He doesn't explain, or sorry, proclaim a, a mysticism. He doesn't, he doesn't get up and give a good motivational talk. He's not talking about tradition. He's not giving good ideas about how you should live your life, right? Five ways you should love your husband or love your wife. He's not giving motivational speaking. He is giving the the only content that matters, and that's Jesus Christ. He's the Son of God, God incarnate. And He's talking about Christ's works, and He's talking about reconciliation and justification. How God has brought Himself and man together. He's reconciled them in Jesus Christ through His body. He's talking about His atonement. And then He's talking about Christ's demands for their life. See, He's not just preaching, well, here's Jesus Christ, His, his, His perfect life, incarnation, His perfect life, His sacrificial death, His resurrection, His ascension. He's not just preaching that. He's preaching the message about Christ. Christ's gospel. That man is separated. Born that way. He needs a Savior. He needs reconciliation. And there's a future hope. He's preaching the whole gospel. He's preaching Christ's demands for your life. You know, in every book, every epistle, let me rephrase that, in every epistle, there is always a content about what? Doctrine and then duty, principle and practice, right? There's always the second aspect. We'll get to that even in this book. There's always, Paul teaches you about Christ and, and who God is, and then he says, all right, now let's live based on that knowledge, right? So he's preaching Jesus Christ. In Genesis through Revelation, we can understand who God is and what He's done and what He requires for us. And that's to respond in faith and obedience. So there's the scope of the gospel. There's the content of the message. And then there's the methods of the ministry. Well, what is he doing? He's proclaiming Christ. Well, he says, I'm admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom. Well, admonishment is just error that needs correcting in regards to behavior or doctrine. Right? I love actually the word here means to, it's a compound word in the Greek, but it means to put someone's mind right. Right? Like you say, I'm going to get your mind right. You're helping them to understand either through knowledge or application. Right? For, for Apollos, Apollos was preaching. He didn't have full knowledge of who Christ is. He basically only knew about the ministry of John the Baptist. And Priscilla and Aquila in Acts, they pulled him aside and he said, Hey, let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about His death. Let me tell you the, the rest of the gospel message. You only have half of it. Right? They pulled him aside to help get his mind right in a doctrinal sense. I remember when I was younger... I, I, you know, when you're young and you're in Bible college, you learn a lot of information really fast. 
and uh, you think you know it all, and you end up, I've used this term before for guys I knew, you know, bazooking people, or like a bazooka, you just blast away, you know, you just blow people away, you don't care about them. Well, I had the benefit, and it is a benefit, at the time it didn't feel like it, but I had the benefit of an uh, you know, older gentleman in the church pulling me aside and going, brother, come alongside, put his arm around me, let's talk after church. I'm like, all right, what's he going to talk about after church? Brother, I've, you know, I've seen you know, the way you handle the truth, you do a good job, but you come across as very unloving. You know, you're just, you're just blowing people, just, you know, like the Westerns, you're just, just firing and then walking away. You don't even see if the person's falling over dead. You're just, just firing and you walk away, right? And I had the benefit of that, the blessing of that, of that admonishment. Come alongside someone and saying, hey, hey you, you, know, you know you have the right doctrine, but your behavior is not consistent, right? For Apollos, it was Priscilla and Aquila coming aside. You can imagine them inviting him over for tea, having some biscuits and saying, all right, brother, let, let's tell you a little bit more. You know, you don't have all the knowledge. You, you only know about the message of repentance, and they said, Apollos knew the Old Testament Scriptures. So if you want to go study the Old Testament about Christ, you need to talk to him. So he knew all that. He just didn't understand. He didn't, he didn't know about the last part, that Jesus Christ had died and rose again and ascended to the Father. So they were, they were helping him out. Come alongside, help get his mind right. right? That's, that's admonishment. And not only do I do that, and the elders do that, and the leaders do that as, as ministers, as, as leaders, but Paul actually says we're all to do it. If you flip over one page to Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, so not only is it a, a leadership function in the church, but it's an individual function as well. So don't think you can get away with not doing it by saying, oh, it's just a pastor's job or just the elder's job. Verse 16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, all of you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to the Lord. Realize, too, that this is why we emphasize songs with good theology, that theology can help correct misconceptions. If that, if that song has good theology, if that song is based off of Scripture, it, it can help in an admonishing way. Sometimes, you know, you're singing along. I've been doing this, done this in the past. You sing along, and all of a sudden you read something or you hear something, you're like, wait a second. Huh, I might have to think about that. I've never thought about that phrase that way. And you're like, well, let me go look that up. And you go look it up in Scripture. And you're like, oh, yeah, I know where Scripture that's coming from. You're right. You know, I, I wasn't thinking that way. That's why we have good theological songs that are songs that aren't all about emotion. We want to engage your emotions in, in the worship of the Lord. Don't, don't get me wrong when I say, you know, it's about knowledge. We want to engage your emotions. But those emotions have to be engaged with a proper understanding of who God is. Right? And that's why we, Peter and I are in agreement, Stephen and I are in agreement, we've talked about this. Like the songs in the worship service have to be theologically sound, biblically based. So you have the methods, admonishment. The whole book of 1 Corinthians, by the way, is an admonishment, as I said before. Right? Teaching. Teaching the doctrines about the church, about God, man, sin. Right? Requirements for your life, all these things from Scripture. We, we never outgrow the need for instruction. Realize that? No matter how wise that Kevin is, we never outgrow it, right? No matter how smart I get, I never outgrow the need for instruction. Until we are face to face with Jesus Christ. Now we know in part, we see him face to face, we'll know in full, right? So we never outgrow the need for teaching. 
Now, there's a limited scope of teaching from a leadership standpoint. The Bible's specific about that, who can teach and who can't. But from, a, from an individual standpoint, you can teach. Husbands teach your wives. Wives and husbands teach your kids. You can admonish each other and teach each other. But from a public proclamation, there is a limitation. Paul lays that out in Scripture. Who, who is allowed to teach from a, from a public standpoint? But we are be have a scope to the gospel ministries to be the good good content of the person of Jesus Christ. And there's to be methods with admonishment and teaching, and then we're to have all wisdom, practical application of Scripture to life and how we deal with people. Not blow each other away, but to speak the truth in love. And then the final aspect of scope is the goal of the ministry. He says the goal is pretty simple. He says the goal, flip over back the page of Colossians. Sorry, give me one second. There you go. He says the goal is we may present every man complete in Christ. He's just talking about maturity. It's really simple, guys, gals. Maturity. The goal is maturity. And we talked about last time, present. The word present is like an offering to God. I'm going to present you to God. And not just a select few, not just men, not just women, not just those that have the special handshake and the knowledge of the Gnostics. Everyone. The goal is to help them mature in Christ. The end process of all the teaching and admonishment with all wisdom is so that you would be mature. Right? Not like babes. That's the whole point of Paul in Corinthians. He says, look, I long to give you meat of the Word, but you're like, you're like newborn babes. All I can give you is milk. The goal, my goal for you, is that you would be mature in Christ. Right? That's the leadership's goal of this church, each and every one of you individually, is that you would be mature in Christ. Right? That should be your goal as well. Right? And that's where the individuals come alongside one another. Right? We admonish one another. We teach one another. We see one, somebody acting ungodly. You know, not putting into practice what they know. We see somebody saying something that's not right. We come alongside them and we help them. Right? We do it publicly from a preaching standpoint, and we do it individually. Colossians 3.16. So maturity. So it's not about flashy lights and smoke and great rock bands. The focus of our worship is Jesus Christ. He revealed Himself in His Word. And the Word is the scope of our ministry. And then real quick, there's a strength that God provides. And this is real simple. Anything that God requires, He gives you the strength to fulfill. Right? Colossians chapter 1, verse 29. He says... For this purpose I labor, striving according to His power which mightily works within me. He labors, He toils. Right? He works hard to help everyone grow in Christ. Right? He's spending His life as a, as a drink offering. Right? We work hard. We toil. Not only as a leadership team, but as individuals. We want to help people. It's kind of that attitude. I don't care what it costs me but knowing that He strengthens us. It's interesting in the Greek, He says that I, I struggle, verse 29, I struggle or strive, but He says that according to His power, which powerfully works within me. Or another way to say it is, it's His power within me that's powerfully empowering me. Right? The word is repeated three times. Power, power, power. He's emphasizing that it's not about us, it's about God empowering us, giving us the strength. Think about the Paul, his life. If he was doing that in his own strength, we call it burnout. Imagine him burned out, right? 
trying to, trying to minister to all these churches and the headaches and writing these letters. He's in prison, right? He's empowered by God. In fact, he actually prays this for these believers. So just so you don't think that it's just Paul and Paul's this super guy because he's an apostle and he's getting all this power from the Lord. He actually prays the same thing for them. He says in verse 9 of chapter 1, I apologize, uh, verse 11, he says that, uh, well, let's go to verse 10. You may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in our respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Verse 11, strengthen with all power, right? Or strengthen with all strength. He uses that double word again. So it's not just Paul, it's us as well. So we think about the ministry. We're laboring for the gospel and we're strengthened by God. So today we've been looking at what it means for a church to have a gospel, biblically focused ministry, a word-centered ministry, right? When I worked for Chick-fil-A, one of the things that Chick-fil-A had is a corporate purpose. And I think it's a great corporate purpose, especially for an uh, organization. It says, To glorify God by being a faithful steward of all that's entrusted to us and have a positive influence on all those we come in contact with. That's a good, good corporate purpose. Serve them well. They seek to honor the Lord, right? We think about it as a church, what's our purpose on this earth? Right? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31 Whatever we do, whether we eat or drink, we do all to the glory of God. We glorify God by testifying about Him in our words, in our life. We glorify God by being obedient to His will. We glorify God by worshiping Him as God in the way that He desires and deserves. Right? How do we know? How do we, how do we testify to who He is? How do we tell people about His works and nature? Will we do it by focusing on the Word of God. How do we understand and be obedient to His will? We, we have the Word of God. How do we worship Him? How do, how do we worship Him in the way that He wants to be worshipped? We understand that from the Word of God, right? We understand who He is and what He's done. We are a Bible-believing church, ladies and gentlemen. We are a Word-centered church. We, are, we focus on the gospel of Jesus Christ and how it offers hope to a fallen world, the Word of God informs us of who God is, who He is and what He's done, of reconciliation through Jesus Christ, and tells us to live in worship and obedience to Him. Holy Spirit strengthens us, help us to live obedient lives and submit to His demands. A true church focuses not on self-help or motivational speakers, but the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ to transform lives. It's husbands and wives loving each other sacrificially kids submitting to their parents, friends overlooking behaviors and instead seeking to serve one another. The members of the body are looking to encourage, inform, admonish, teach, remind each other the truth of God's Word. So a gospel-centered ministry involves suffering for the gospel, a stewardship of the Word, involves specifics, scope of ministry, and it gives strength and it has strength that God provides. Right? We're a gospel-centered church. Praise the Lord that we have Apostle Paul's example for us. Praise the Lord that we can follow this ministry example in our own church and own lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your grace. Thank You for Your mercy. We thank You for Your Word that we can understand, be informed, celebrate 
We're so thankful for the Apostle Paul and his life being poured out as a drink offering, not only for these churches, but for us as well. So many thousands of years we have his word that you inspired. Lord, we thank you for his life, his example. We thank you that we can emulate that example and maintain the word-centered focus of our lives and of this local body. We pray that we would go now and that we'd have a good week, a godly week, seeking to glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all.